We are back. As mentioned at the top of the program, we've got to find a way to lighten our load a little bit, which we're going to do momentarily. And, you know, here's a little meme I think I'm just going to toss out just to sort of set the tone. Someone sent this around saying, my son is taking part in a social experiment. He has to wear a Trump 2020 t-shirt for two weeks and see how people react. So far, he's been spit on, punched, and had a bottle thrown at him. I'm curious to see what happens when he goes outside. <laughs> All right, and on that note, let's lighten our load by going to an old friend of ours who I know has the capability to do this, Dr. Howard McKinney. Without any further ado, welcome back to the show, Howard. It's a pleasure to speak with you again, Dr. Doug. Let's talk about the doctor thing. The doctor thing. Yes, I am one of those doctors. But I'm a pharmacy doctor, a PharmD. I went to the University of California, San Francisco School of Pharmacy, graduated in 1978 with a pharmacy doctor, PharmD degree. In 1992, I passed the boards and became a board-certified clinical toxicologist, abbreviated DBAT, D-A-D-A-T, Diplomate of the American Board of Applied Toxicology, and then a couple of years ago, as a fellow of the American College of Clinical Toxicology, uh, so I got all kinds of letters after my name. <laughs> I'm the secretary treasurer of that American Board of Applied Toxicology. I'm also the secretary of NAST, the North American Society of Toxinology, with an N, that's venoms and all those creepy crawly things, wonderful stuff. I'm also a member of the European Association of Poison Centers and Clinical Toxicologists and have several other affiliations. However, far before any of that, I was Howard. I was Howard <laughs> through all that, and I'm still Howard. So that works just fine. Yes, uh, a mutual friend of ours, one of our sometime travel correspondents, Stan Godwin, has crossed your paths, Howard, and said, you know... You've just got to like a guy that you want to book the travel arrangements for an international conference on Venom. <laughs> Absolutely. Who could, who could stay away? <laughs> yeah, let, that's a good place to enter this conversation. What, what do people talk about at, a, at an international conference on Venom? Well, duh. <laughs> venom. Snake Venom, uh, Scorpion Venom, uh, sea sna what, Sneeze Snake Venom. What, what kind of Venoms? Every, every kind? We have all kinds of wonderful interactions. There's one series of meetings in particular, maybe we can go into more detail of that later, but one series of meetings in particular is called Venom Week. And in Venom Week, what we endeavored to create is a colloquium where everybody could get together. So we have amateur people who keep snakes as pets. We have biologists out in the field who earn their degree and earn their living doing research on snakes and spiders and all kinds of critters. Uh, we have the research scientists who uh, do research on the venoms. We have people who run venom labs where they actually keep the animals and extract the venom that has been used by all kinds of other people for all kinds of purposes. 
That's the kind of thing we used to see on Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom, right? Where they would take some deadly snake out of a bag and then have it bite something and then uh, extract the liquid into a container for future study. Well, if you quote-unquote take the deadly snake out of the bag, very likely what the deadly snake is going to bite is the person with the bag. (laughs) So we try not to do that. Well, as I recall, Jim Fowler was very careful in how he did that. Uh, At least on film. Hey, 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 clarify something. I was reading something many years ago, I think it was an undergraduate, that uh, there was a caretaker in the zoo in in um, St. Louis, I think it was, and he received a, a very nasty snake bite that almost killed him, but he got through it, and his name was Marlon Perkins. <laughs> so I'm thinking on those Mutual of Lomaha shows, now we know why Marlon wasn't handling the snake. <laughs> well, the, the techniques have been developed over the last hundred years or so, but actually the Venom Labs currently, the people who run them, the labs are very safe, and there are very few bites in those facilities because people just don't take those chances. Well, thank, thank God. Really? So you've got a vial of poison, deadly poison that kills people, uh, various toxins. I know some break down tissue, some are neurotoxins, stop your breathing, etc. How, you, how do you convert that into something useful? Um, slowly. (laughs) It's quite the process. There's a a burgeoning field now. There has always been among the venom nerds a fascination with what venoms are made of and what they do. And that's kind of off by itself, but it was really an epiphany when people realized, hey, you can make some medicines out of the chemicals. So your average rattlesnake in the United States has a venom that's probably composed of eh, 50 to 80, the number 60 is used a lot, different molecules. So if you get the venom out of the snake, you then take the venom and fractionate it. You divide it up by various and sundry mechanisms based on weight or uh, all kinds of other criteria. And you begin to see the different components. You can then isolate each molecule and study what it does. And there's a whole string of about a dozen drugs that are on the market right now that were, in fact, derived from snake venom. Really? Yes. For example? For example, the ACE inhibitors. The ACE inhibitors for blood pressure, all the... Came from venom research? Yep, yep, like lisinopril, enalapril, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And they were initially discovered as a component of some South American rattlesnakes. Holy mackerel. All right, let's circle back. Angiotensin converting enzyme, ACE, those inhibitors are, uh, are popular drugs for, for blood pressure, but the coronavirus has found a way to tackle one of them, the ACE2, and that's how it, uh, it, it grabs us and gets into our cells. Correct. Holy so mackerel. It is now, it is now be, oh, it gets even better because there are researchers like Brian Fry in Australia, the infamous Brian Fry, who basically not only just separate out the components, but do that in mega style. They really separate out the components and are now using 
artificial intelligence programs, and this is being done specifically for the coronavirus, to go back and look at all the medicinal chemistry data, every single publication that has ever been published, to see if there's any possible activity of these molecules to affect the coronavirus and the process the coronavirus uses to attach to our cells, replicate itself, cause disease, be transmitted from person to person, and all of that. Wow. So are you optimistic we're going to be able to, to, to extract out of that database something that, we're, that should be useful in the reasonably near future? For me, my friend, the glass is always half full. <laughs> but there is that other half. Right. Uh, unclear. Yeah. The, the, the coronavirus is proving to be a devilishly clever virus. It's mutating. It's got multiple mechanisms that can exercise to do harm to us. And it's a just incredibly unknown entity. It's brand new. So it's not that people are making stuff up about it or anything. It's that nobody's ever seen this critter before. Yeah. Well, this isn't the first time a virus showed up out of nowhere to, to everybody's surprise that turned out to be very nasty. Back in the 80s, I know you were in San Francisco as HIV arrived on the scene. And oh, I, I guess you got to watch how it is that, you know, with trial and error, they were able to figure out a cocktail that that's finally stopped it in its tracks. The major discovery out of all that, at least my interpretation of it, is when I went through college, it's an undergrad at UC San Diego in the 60s, uh -huh. we had what we call the Holy Trinity, and it is you go from DNA to RNA to protein, period, that's it, it's one direction. Yes. What HIV taught us, the human immunodeficiency virus taught us, is that there is an enzyme that allows that process to go in the reverse from protein to RNA to DNA. So that was a huge shakeup in the understanding of all of medicinal chemistry and biochemistry. And that's what gave rise to the drugs that don't cure, but at least reduce the effectiveness of the HIV virus to actually replicate and produce disease. It also, as a matter of fact, is when you hear about the PCR assay that's used for the coronavirus. Polymerase chain reaction. That is correct, sir. Uh -huh. The enzyme that does that is the enzyme that the HIV virus used to actually work the DNA RNA protein in reverse. So we can thank HIV for teaching us how to do the PCR assay. Well, it's pretty clear that you do enough basic research, you can find all kinds of, of, uh, of answers to this. I, I know we, we've got to have you come on for a lengthy discussion about all this, and we're, we're going to do that in the, next, in the next week or two. But, but there's so much data today that I, want to, that I want to talk about that I do want to bring you to a premature close. But before I do that, I, I want to ask you right now about this prospect of, of a vaccine. We were hoping for an HIV vaccine in the 80s, and we're still waiting. 
So the idea that that's going to ride to the rescue here is something we've tried to warn people. Just, you know, be cautious about that. Correct. My take on it is vaccines are just a tool, an incredibly valuable tool in certain circumstances. So the childhood immunizations against measles, mumps, rubella, et cetera, et cetera, have actually just revolutionized pediatrics and the health status in general of homo sapiens. It's, it's incredible the impact that vaccines have had. As valuable as they are, they are not useful for every single virus, bacteria, and infecting organism. And it's totally unclear at the moment whether there will ever be a protective vaccine against this particular coronavirus. Not the least of the problems is which of the coronaviruses do you make the vaccine against? And just because you make a vaccine, just because you've created a molecule that somehow gloms onto some of the coronaviruses, that is absolutely no guarantee that that's going to be globally effective and actually stop the disease production that that virus is capable of performing. So there's a lot of uncertainty about it, and I hate to say it, but the, shall we call them, vaccinologists Uh are really doubtful at the moment that there will be an effective vaccine, at least one that is made according to the way vaccines have always been made. There's always the possibility that somebody's going to discover some medicinal chemistry, biochemical newness trick that will make a new type of vaccine that might be very effective against coronavirus, against COVID. But that's the future. That We have not seen that yet. And there, there's been much talk about how we could put something in your cells and then you make some of the antigens that the, your body responds to. And this is a shortcut method. But as far as, and I'm sure you can verify, as far as I know, this has never been actually done yet. Correct. And there are volunteers being gathered, as I'm sure you've read. And there are studies proposed to take people who have recovered from cases of coronavirus who once tested positive but now test negative, that's a whole nother discussion. But some of them are volunteering to be re-exposed to the coronavirus, which normally medical experimenters don't get to do because they're too much risk. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if you re-expose them and can prove that they actually have protective immunity, then that opens an entire venue of possibilities for tools to protect humans from this particular virus. Howard, I'm reluctant to do this, but we have so much to talk about today. I want I want to just pause this and have you come back soon and talk about such things as, well, you were there on the ground in San Francisco as a lot of this uh, a lot of this unfolded for HIV, our previous uh, disastrous uh, pandemic, and some of those stories we, I think you need to share with the public. <laughs> Some of them. Some of them. <laughs> some of them. <laughs> There's such thing as unshareable anecdotes. Yes. That was a fascinating and terrifying era. Yes. Indeed it was. But you know what? Let's bring you back on like next week. Sounds good. 
Howard, thank you so much. Howard McKinney, our resident PhD expert on toxins and other things. All right, as we ended the uh, first segment, we suggested we would circle back to this 60 Minutes um, examination of Robert Dasick and others, other virologists out there trying to prevent what has now happened. And because of what has now happened in 2019 and 2020, what was shown in that 2004 60 Minutes is, can be seen as even more important. When you get around to watching that segment, and we certainly hope you do, because of good research, virologists were able to halt the Nipah virus, which broke out in 2003, and 60 Minutes showed how they did it. The Nipah virus, like coronavirus, was endemic in bats. But somewhere along the way, it made the jump into pigs. It gave pigs a nasty respiratory illness, which some passed on to their human tenders. His death rate, I think, was as bad as SARS, and it certainly had the potential to spread all around the world, but it was stopped. Peter Dazak and others determined that you could actually retrieve live virus particles or more correctly, active virus particles off of fruit, which the bats ate and left their saliva on. These viral-laden mangoes then dropped into the pig enclosures where they were consumed and made the animals sick. In Malaysia, not knowing what to do, they killed millions of pigs to try and halt the virus. It hadn't gotten very far in the human population and it was stopped there too, but to prevent future outbreaks, Malaysian pig farmers were counseled to make sure they didn't have any mango trees near the pig farms. The idea was to prevent it from happening again, and so far it has been successful. This is the kind of thing that we need. These are the kind of researchers that we need. And yet, Peter Dazak's NIH grant got cut off when it was revealed that some of the funds that were at his disposal wound up in Wuhan in part because that's where the bats are. Embedded in that Daily Coast piece, you will find a discussion with an epidemiologist about the curtailment of a NIH grant. It was noted that, yes, the NIH does, when necessary, halt grant funding. If people are being harmed by the study, or there's out-and-out -out fraud in the study, or some form of outrageous misbehavior associated with the study, they stop it after convening a board of inquiry. Dayzak's funds, however, were just simply cut off without explanation, something which has never happened before. This, of course, is the result of presidential politics. We've predicted on this show in the past, and we'll do so again, that as the weeks and months go by, particularly if this doesn't go well, and we don't think it's going to go well, a scapegoat must be found and blame must settle on someone else besides the president. Now, the truth is, this is not all Donald Trump's fault. There's plenty of other incompetence to go around in the administration, which we will talk about in our addendum show. And I think I have to confess that some emails I sent out last week to people pointing out that epidemiologists believe, or at least according to some of their estimates, that the lack of action on the part of the administration might account for as much as 60% of the death toll in America. We need to know how they came up with that number. It's certainly true that there has been an increase in morbidity and mortality because of the chaotic haphazard response of the government. 
but it's hard to put an exact number on it. It could be argued that if the 60% figure is correct, then when the death toll reaches 97,000, which it probably will by the first week in June, if not sooner, then at that point, the death toll from COVID-19 due to the mishandling of it by the administration will have, result, will have resulted in more deaths than the Vietnam accomplished in 15 years. We intend to keep playing with those numbers and see where they lead. On a much happier note, there's this statistic from NPR.org. Global greenhouse gas emissions are expected to fall by 8% this year, the largest decrease on record. But the United Nations says that emissions will need to fall by that amount each year for the next decade to limit warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius and avoid the worst effects of climate change. Well, I'm sorry that it took COVID-19 to accomplish this, but it's a good thing. But something that statistically is most decidedly not a good thing are what the numbers show from around the world in terms of death rates. When this thing began, it was pointed out that uh, seasonal flu has a death rate of only a tenth of a percent, perhaps less. It was assumed that COVID-19 was five times worse at 0.5%. But if you take the current numbers of what the number of cases reported are and the death rate, which are admittedly are inaccurate, but inaccurate though they may be, here's what they're telling us. Death rate, USA, 6%. Spain, 10%. UK, 13.8. Italy, 13.9. France, 15.5. Thankfully, there's Germany, 4.5, and California at just 4.1. I say just, but that is eight times worse than what was thought to be the worst case scenario when this first got untracked. This underscores the need for better testing and certainly more widespread testing. But since I'm tired of being Dr. Doom, let's take a little interlude here and see if we can't do the good, the bad, and the ugly, shall we? According to the Week magazine, it was a good week last week for defying stereotypes. After a cat jumped on a sleeping Canadian couple and alerted them to smoke pouring from the slow cooker in the kitchen. Scott White noted that his other pet, a supposed guard dog, slept soundly as the kitchen fire threatened to get out of control. Said White, the real hero is the cat. Meow, 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 meow. Well, we hope Fluffy got more tender vittles out of that one. And it was, on the other hand, a bad week for the newborn son of billionaire Tesla and SpaceX founder Elon Musk and his girlfriend, electronic musician Grimes. The two were attempting to name their baby, and bear with me on this, X followed by that Greek letter that combines A and E followed by A-12. That's the name they want to give newborn Musk. Apparently, baby name expert Laura Wattenberg doubted that the state of California 
officials will accept this as a legal moniker, calling it a wildly impractical name. And it was an ugly week last week for everyone else associated with Elon Musk, with the news that the CEO is now threatening to move his electric car manufacturing company out of Fremont and has also filed suit over local ordinances. Musk has called shelter-in-place rules fascist and initially refused to close his plant in March when the Bay Area issued its first in the nation shelter-in-place order. I have to laugh in noting that after making this announcement, Fremont's mayor appeared to side with Tesla in calling for the health order to be loosened. Last week, the state of California eased its guidelines for manufacturing, but Alameda County and the rest of the Bay Area have kept stricter orders in place. I guess in this case, the devil's in the details, and we really don't know the details, but we hope they can work this out. Let's talk briefly about Joe Biden. Writing in the New York Times, someone named Elizabeth Bruning said, We may never know if Joe Biden sexually assaulted former staffer Tara Reid in 1993, but we can say now with firm conviction the Democrats should consider a plan B for their nominee. Posting on social media, a relative of Mr. McMillan, no less, suggested that Biden has to step down, and he added in the future there should be a new legal standard where the accused, in the case of sexual assault, has to prove his innocence. Neither myself or Mr. Millen know how that could work. But Michael Stern, writing in USA Today, said, As a former prosecutor who's handled many sexual assault cases, I'm increasingly skeptical of Reed's claims. A year ago, Reed told a reporter that Biden had touched her neck and shoulders in a way that made her uncomfortable, but she made no reference to putting his hand up her skirt and penetrating her. Reed said a year ago she filed a formal complaint against Biden, but now says it didn't mention sexual assault. And three Biden staffers from that era say there was no such complaint. Reed said in an interview a year ago that she lost her job with Biden after she refused to serve drinks at a party. She now says she was fired for filing the missing complaint. Perhaps most curious is that in late 2018, Reed began effusively praising President Vladimir Putin, describing him as a genius whose strength and shirtless photos are intoxicating to American women. She then went on to poo-poo Russian election interference. And wait, there's more. Reporter Alexandra Jaffe notes that Tara Reid, a former Senate staffer who alleged Joe Biden assaulted her 27 years ago, is being represented by a prominent lawyer and political donor to President Donald Trump's 2016 Republican campaign. Attorney Douglas Wigdor told the AP he was not currently being paid for his work with Reid. His firm also denied there was a political motivation for his decision to represent Reid in her accusations against Trump's presumptive Democratic opponent in the November election. He said, quote, We have decided to take this matter on because every survivor has the right to competent counsel. I'm, I'm wondering if he feels the same way about the 20-odd women who have accused Donald Trump of sexual indiscretions. We think not. And in our final two minutes today, we note with terror what's going on in the Supreme Court of the United States at present, as there's an argument being presented over the question of faithless electors in America's Electoral College. When the Electoral College was initially set up before political parties were a fact of American life, it was assumed and written into the Constitution that the electors would go forward to choose a president. They were clearly to be free agents. With the rise of political parties, it was demanded that the actual results of the state balloting would determine how the elector cast his ballot. 
And I'm no constitutional scholar, but I see a problem in the fact that the explicit language and intent of the Founding Fathers is not what we've been operating on since the late 1700s. Since there are those in the Supreme Court who wish to follow a tradition of the original intent, this could completely cut loose the Electoral College from election results. We suspect that what might, might, and I hope does, save us in this issue is the fact that the conservative Republicans on the court may note that activists seeking to subvert Trump's victory in 2016 spurred seven electors to break their pledge, which of course was well short of the 37 needed, but more than in any previous presidential election. We have a sneaking suspicion that might influence their decision. And if by accident it spurs it in the correct direction, well, so much the better. All right, our thanks to Dr. Howard McKinney. Mr. Millen and I hope to be back before one week is up with an addendum show. Our show, of course, being Radio Parallax. I am your faithful host, Douglas Everett. What do we got for bumper music, Mr. McMillan? Say live and let die. Good choice. Live and let die.